0: chapter 14. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob and once again choose Israel. This is a Jacob-Israel category that the Lord intends or hopes to save and have compassion upon them. And again, renew a covenant relationship with them. But they need to do their part. They need to repent. And then he can choose them again. and Then they become the category of Zion and Jerusalem that, that survives. The having compassion and and choosing, those are covenant terms, especially compassion means to have a covenant relationship with. And of course, many are called, a few are chosen. The actual choosing is an elect status or confirmation. When you prove faithful to the Lord in covenant keeping, then he confirms the covenant upon you instead of a conditional covenant, an unconditional covenant with you. He will settle them in their own land or give them back the promised land from which they have been exiled and dispersed. Proselytes will adhere to them and join the house of Jacob. Remember the clean animals living in peace, in harmony with the unclean, or the unclean living in harmony with the clean? So there will be proselytes from among the Gentiles who will join the house of Jacob and become the covenant people of the Lord. They will all become one people. The nations will take them and bring them to their own place, or the Gentiles will. In particular, the kings and queens of the Gentiles, as we see in chapter 49, verse 22, and other places. Who are the kings and queens of the Gentiles? Not the political kings and queens of the Gentiles. They're not involved in this work. So it refers to some other category of kings and queens who perform a ministering function to the house of Israel. Kind of like Joseph in Egypt, he ministered and saved his brethren the time of the famine in Egypt. The Nations will take them and bring them to their own place, and the house of Israel will possess them as men servants and maid servants in the land of the Lord. They will take captive their captors and rule over their oppressors. Does that mean that there will be a captors and oppressors still left alive? It's possible that they may have begun like that. It refers, no doubt, to the posterity of those who perhaps were left alive at that time. Or possibly that those who were involved as oppressors and captors at first were converted to the Lord because of remorse of perpetrating these things upon innocent people, and that caused their conversion. There were many of Hitler's people during Second World War who had such remorse and who changed sides, in fact, who would not participate in that horrible scene of conquest and destruction. Now the House of Israel will possess them as men servants and maid servants. That means that there will be different categories of people, some elect categories and some lesser categories of people. And then people will be able to distinguish between the two, and the veil of mortality is taken away, as it says later on, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 25 and 26. Right now we have sheep and goats living together, and we can't distinguish necessarily easily between the two. But then when mortality is done away, then people will be seen for who and what they are. Some will be in higher spiritual categories than others and they will minister down to lower categories. And so we'll have an unequal situation to facilitate upward the progression. So those above minister to those below and those below are helped to ascend higher by those above. In verse 3, In the day the Lord gives you relief from grief and anguish and from the arduous servitude imposed on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, the day is still the same day of judgment, but it is when the king of Babylon comes to an end. And the king of Babylon is destroyed from the earth himself. And the king of Babylon was a title that Assyrian kings anciently assumed when they conquered Babylon, because it was a religious title. And that's the connotation here. The name Babylon implies idolatry. Isaiah is wishing to emphasize his idolatrous aspect. King of Assyria implies the political aspect. King of Babylon implies the religious aspect. And that religious aspect is in the nature of idolatry. He's idolatrous. Babylon is idolatrous. Babylon set the precedent, anciently, for idolatry. In the day the Lord gives you relief from grief and anguish and from the arduous servitude. That's the yoke and the rod and the staff of the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon that he imposed upon the Lord's people. Which people? Not the ones whom he destroyed, not the elect who went into the exodus, but the middle category of people. They're the ones over whom he has power for a time, and then when he's overthrown by the Lord's servant, that is the day when that category of people is released from such oppression. And they will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, a taunt like a tirade, or a song of putting down the king of Babylon. How the tyrant has met his end, and tyranny ceased. How begins a lament, as in the book of Lamentations. And so this is a lament for him, but it's not really so much as a lament as it is a parody of the king of Babylon, the king of Assyria, and his power. How the tyrant has met his end, and tyranny ceased. He is the tyrant of all tyrants, the arch-tyrant of the book of Isaiah, and with his demise came the end of tyranny, on the earth. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the rod of those who ruled. There are the two terms, rod and staff, that identify the king of Assyria in chapter 10, remember? And so the breaking of the staff and the rod is the breaking of the power of the king of Assyria, who's called the king of Babylon here. He's the wicked one, the rod and staff of the wicked, who ruled for a time. Him who with unerring blows struck down the nations in anger, who subdued peoples in his wrath by relentless oppression. This is like one of those verses that you can read two ways. The king of Assyria, the king of Babylon, struck down the nations. He was angry with them. He subdued them wrathfully in his wrath by relentless oppression. He was a vengeful, wrathful, angry, oppressive person. You can read it that way. Or you can say, the Lord struck down the nations, using the king of Assyria as his instrument. Verse 7, Now the whole earth is at rest and at peace. There is jubilant celebration. I remember after the Second World War, of the jubilant celebration that came on the day of liberation. In Holland, where I was born, was liberated from the Germans. After five or six years of continuous warfare, people just went, and danced in the streets and sang and hugged each other and kissed each other and whatever. It was jubilant celebration. Now the whole earth, which because the whole earth was destroyed by him, is at rest and at peace. So the time of peace, or the millennium, now begins. This is the time of the thief in the night. The thief in the night has done his robbing and his plundering and his pillaging. Now he's come to an end, and now the Lord himself may come. That is the redemption of Zion. You can link this to other parts of Isaiah and it is the redemption of Zion. Verse 8, The pine trees too rejoice over you as do the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you have been laid low, no hewer has risen against us. Remember, he was the one who hewed down the cedars of Lebanon. He was the axe and the saw. But what he did to others is now done to him. He's now laid low. He's now hewn down. So, Trees being a metaphor for peoples, they're the ones who are rejoicing over his fall. In fact, everything in Isaiah that exalts itself falls. He exalts himself higher than all, as we'll see in this chapter, and he falls below all. Babylon exalts herself, and she falls. And all those who oppress and exalt themselves over other people, they all fall to a greater or lesser degree as they emulate this paradigm. Verse 9, Sheol below was in commotion because of you, anticipating your arrival. Sheol is the underworld or the spirit prison or hell, anticipating the arrival of his spirit when he died. On your account she roused all the spirits of the world leaders, causing all who had ruled nations to rise up from their thrones. So there was some kind of hierarchy maintained in that underworld where all these phantoms or Spirits of the dead, the wicked ones, were aroused to greet this individual, knowing he was coming. Verse 10, All alike were moved to say to you, Even you have become powerless as we are. You have become like us. Now the righteous don't become powerless, so you know that it's talking about the wicked, the oppressive and unrighteous rulers of the earth, or those who had ruled unrighteously upon the earth. Even you have become powerless as we are have become like us, or as they thought him to be some great one. In fact, he made himself the god of this world, as we'll see in the next few verses. And he's perhaps even more powerless than they are, because of his greater wickedness. Your glory has been cast down to Sheol, along with the music of your lyres, implying that there's some kind of subculture associated with him, in art and music, perhaps. Beneath you is a bed of maggots, you are covered with worms. This is very literal, that he dies like a man and his flesh rots, and the worms eat it. Verse 12, how... the second lament. first lament began in verse 4, how the tyrant has met his end and tyranny ceased. Verse 12, how you have fallen from the heavens, O morning star, son of the dawn. You who commanded the nations have been hewn down to earth. This is still the same individual the one who's been laid low. Verse 8, Since you have been laid low, no hewer has risen against us. Now what he did to others is done to him. He is hewn down. He's the one who commanded the nations whom he conquered. And yet, some say this refers to Lucifer or Satan. And could that be the case? What Isaiah does here is he combines several attributes from historical and mythological figures into one person. Like Assyrian world conquerors from the north, they set a precedent for that. King of Babylon, the Babylonians set a precedent for false or idolatrous ideologies. And then he takes figures out of ancient or Eastern mythology and combines those character traits all into one person. So this would be like a compound of several different types from the past or from mythology to characterize this one individual, this king of Babylon, this king of Assyria. An individual who would, would be like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Darth Vader all rolled into one. And that's what he does here. This is the mythology part of that. He's fallen from the heavens. Now, could this have secondary allusions to Lucifer or to Satan? Yes, it could. The same as chapter 9, verse 4, to us the son is born, the child appointed. could have a secondary connotation referring to Christ, not the primary connotation because it doesn't link with word links to the Lord's servant as uh, Isaiah has established there. But yes, there can be several different levels on which we can read this as well. When we apply it purely to a mythological level or some kind of um, prehistory of the earth, then there could be some relevance there, no doubt. The point is that that which exalts itself falls. And it's talking about a man here who is hewn down, whose body is eaten by maggots, who doesn't get a burial. Is this the man who made the earth shake and kingdoms quake, in verse 16? It talks about his corpse. It's literal, besides whatever mythological or spiritual connotations this may have. How you have fallen from the heavens, O morning star, son of the dawn. Well, how can a man fall from the heavens? Well, it tells you, in verses 13 and 14, that he actually ascends up above the clouds and sits up there. And that, of course, is possible with today's technology. You can go up in the spaceship today and be up there and fall down. And your spaceship can come crashing down. How you have fallen from the heavens, O morning star, son of the dawn. What does a spaceship look like when it's up there, circling the globe? It just looks like a star, doesn't it? It looks like a blob of light up there reflecting in the sun. You who commanded the nations have been hewn down to earth. The one who commands the nations in the book of Isaiah is the king of Assyria, in this case under his title the king of Babylon. You said in your heart, I will rise in the heavens and set my throne above the stars of God. And the book of Israel mentions one who ascends the heavens in order to escape calamity upon the earth. So the very destruction that he's causing upon the earth He's seeking himself to avoid the effects of by going up there. I will seat myself in the Mount of Assembly of the Gods in the utmost heights of Safon. Safon is the north. So like the pole star up there, he's up there, perhaps in his Cosmograd or spaceship, monitoring things like Darth Vader upon the earth, with power to enforce his commands from such a place. Verse 14, I will ascend above the altitude of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. The Most High was El Elyon, the highest of the gods, the Hebrew gods. He wants to displace God. He wants to make himself the God of heaven and the God of the earth. Of course, he doesn't believe in a literal God, so he makes himself into a God. This is the counterfeit of exaltation. The Lord does exalt his people as they ascend higher on the spiritual ladder. Each ascent up the spiritual ladder or progression is a form of exaltation. They're exalted on higher and higher levels. But this is a counterfeit of such exaltation. This is a false way of exaltation. That which exalts itself now falls. That which humbles itself now, the Lord exalts. Later on we see in the book of Isaiah how the suffering servant is humiliated or humbled and then he's exalted as king of Zion. And this is the exact opposite paradigm of that. The king of Babylon establishes this false paradigm of self-exaltation, followed by humiliation and fall. The suffering servant, who turns out to be the Lord himself in one of Isaiah's structures, he's humble and then he's exalted as king of Zion. And those two ideas kind of establish paradigms and in the end time happen concurrently. I will ascend above the altitude of the clouds and make myself like the Most High. Just like those Mesopotamian gods of mythology did. They aspired to be the god of gods. They aspired to displace other gods. And in the process, they fell. So Isaiah draws upon ancient written myth as one of his components in characterizing or creating a character trait or description of this actual literal person. Verse 15, but you've been brought down to Sheol to the utmost depths of the pit. In fact, the utmost depths establishes him as the lowest of the low and as a paradigm of such. Not just to hell or the underworld or the spirit prison in general, but to the very bottom of it. Those who catch sight of you stare at you wondering, is this the man who made the earth shake and kingdoms quake? who turned the world into a wilderness, demolishing its cities, permitting not his captives to return home. That was done by the kings of Assyria, which is what he is. He's the rod and stuff, the yoke and so forth, the sword and all of that, the anger and the wrath. In chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Therefore the anger of the Lord of hosts is kindled against his people. He draws back his hand against them and strikes them. The mountains quake and their corpses lie like litter about the streets. Their mountains or nations quaking is a word link to this chapter, 14, verse 16. Is this the man who made the earth shake and kingdoms quake? He's a power of chaos. He does turn the world into a wilderness, as we've already seen. He is the one who demolishes its cities. He is the one who commits people to servitude and yokes them down with heavy burdens. Verse 18, all rulers of nations lie in state, each among his own kindred. But you are cast away, unburied, like a repugnant fetus, exposed like the slain, disfigured by the sword, whose mangled remains are thrown in a gravel pit. Yuck. Other people, other nations, who were not as wicked as he was, or who were not wicked at all, receive a proper burial, but not him. To have no burial is a covenant curse. Later on we see in chapter 53 how this chapter, chapter 14, is juxtaposed with chapters 52 and 53 and everything that is spoken of the king of Babylon in this chapter has its counterpart or opposite in chapters 52 and 53 which talks about the king of Zion. One of the things that happens to the suffering servant is that he does die but he's buried whereas the king of Babylon is not buried. Also it talks about him seeing his seed or having a seed or offspring in chapter 53 of the suffering servant, whereas here his offspring are massacred. They're destroyed from the face of the earth. So there is a kind of an antithesis going on between the king of Babylon here and the king of Zion in chapters 52 and 53. The king of Babylon exalts himself now and is humiliated and in chapter 52 and 53. The king of Zion is humiliated and then exalted. There's a direct antithesis between the two and direct parallelism. You're cast away unburied. This is an actual person with a corpse. You shall not share burial with them, verse 20, for you have destroyed your land and murdered your people. made a brood of miscreants nevermore be mentioned. How does he destroy his own land and his own people and murder them? Because he took them into the war with him to destroy the people of God, and then vengeance came upon him and his people who did that. Very much like uh, after the Second World War when the Allies destroyed much of Germany. Germany was desolated because of Hitler's ambitions to conquer the world or to conquer Europe. May the brood of miscreants never more be mentioned so their very name becomes an anathema. Prepare for the massacre of their sons in consequence of their father's deeds lest they rise up again and take possession of the world and fill the face of the earth with cities. They're world conquerors, they're now destroyed themselves, and their offspring are also destroyed, as in the next verse. I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, I will cut off Babylon's name and remnant, its offspring and descendants, says the Lord. So no offspring or descendants left behind. In fact, all the wicked, including them, are erased from the face of the earth. None of them are left behind. But the word sons and fathers also has a covenantal connotation. These sons could refer to their vassal status to the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon. I will cut off Babylon's name and remnant, its offspring and descendants. When the Lord says he will rise up against them, that is a word linked to other places where the Lord intervenes. When they cause this destruction, the Lord intervenes to deliver his people and to reclaim the earth from the power of the king of Babylon. Now, as king of Babylon, he's also the one, as we saw in chapter 13, who destroys Babylon or the world or its wicked inhabitants. That's kind of an irony that he, being the king of Babylon, destroys that which he represents. The very wicked world that he represents, he destroys. Whereas the Lord himself does the exact opposite. As king of Zion, he delivers his people, Zion. He's a deliverer of his people. He's very destructive. The woman Babylon is like he beats up on his wife and kills her, whereas the king of Zion delivers his wife, the woman Zion. Paradigm of wickedness and the paradigm of righteousness. To have no remnant or offspring or descendants is a covenant curse, of course. As for the land, I will turn it into swamp lands. Verse 23 I will turn it into swamp lands, a haunt for ravens. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. This sweeping, the use of the word sweep, is a total annihilation or destruction. It's a total kind of destruction of all the living. I will turn into a land a haunt for ravens, like we saw the unclean animals that inhabit those destroyed places. They become places that are associated with evil and become a testimony of those who live there. It will be a testimony of what happened to those who were evil, who inhabited it. It was a haunt of ravens. It's like the before and after scenario. Before it was inhabited by unclean human creatures, right? Now it's inhabited by unclean animal creatures. But the one symbolizes the other. Verse 24, The Lord of hosts made an oath saying, As I foresaw it, so shall it happen. As I planned it, so shall it be. I will break Assyria in my own land, trample them underfoot on my mountains. Their yoke shall be taken from them, their burden removed from their shoulders. Now remember the king of Assyria trampled underfoot the people of Lord Mud. what he does to others is now done to him or to his armies. Still talking about the king of Babylon or the king of Assyria. By an oath, it was all planned from the beginning. As I foresaw it, so shall it happen. As I planned it, so shall it be. And that's the same idea as what I read in chapter 37 where it says, Have you not heard how I ordained this thing long ago, how in days of old I planned it? Now I have brought it to pass. You were destined to demolish fortified cities, turning them into heaps of rubble, while their timorous inhabitants shrank away in confusion. Chapter 37, verses 26 and 27. It was planned, it was built into the plan for this earth, in other words, that at some point all the wicked should be erased from the face of the earth. And that Assyria would be chosen for that destruction and then Assyria itself would be destroyed except the remnant of Assyria, the ten tribes. So you see how in every case the Lord brings good out of evil. He took the ten tribes captive and then they end up not only being the survivors of this destruction in the last days but also the land of Assyria becomes their land of inheritance. Who would have thought when the ten tribes went captive that such would be the result? Only God can orchestrate history like that to bring good out of evil and fulfill his purposes for all mankind. I will break Assyria in my own land, that is, in the promised land, trample them underfoot on my mountains or among the nations of his people. Not just the one nation that existed anciently, but the nations of his people out there who now have become a universal entity. There is more than one promised land. Their yoke shall be taken from them, their burdens removed from their shoulders. That is the yoke of the king of Assyria's power will be taken from them. He's the yoke around their necks. They'll be delivered from bondage, from bondage to him, to the king of Babylon or the king of Assyria. These are things determined upon the whole earth, and this is the hand upraised over all nations. For what the Lord of hosts has determined, who can revoke when his hand is upraised, who shall turn it away? It's like that decree we talked about earlier that Isaiah talks about. The hand upraised over all nations is the king of Assyria who's given power over all the nations of the earth for a time. And no one can turn that hand away because the Lord upraises it or raises it up or sustains it so that that work of destruction may be done upon all those who don't repent when their lease of time runs out. And yet, the Lord's servant is also his hand. And eventually, the Lord's right hand of deliverance wins out The Lord's servant is given power over the king of Assyria. So it says, when his hand is upraised, who can turn it away? Well, the Lord's servant can, and the Lord empowers him. Verse 28, in the year King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not all you Philistines, now that the rod which struck you is broken. From among the descendants of that snake shall spring up a viper, and his offspring shall be a fiery flying serpent. This is messianic imagery, or serpent imagery the word serpent or snake, nachash in Hebrew, has the same numerical value as the word Messiah or anointed one, which anciently kings of Israel were. They were called anointed one or Messiah. In numerology, they have the same numerical value, the two terms. The word serpent is a Messiah symbol. Just the same as the brazen serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness became a Messiah symbol for all those who looked they were delivered from the poisonous serpents who bit the people, and for their labor of looking, they survived and didn't perish. Now, the rod which struck you is broken refers to King Ahaz, a Davidic king. And here are people rejoicing that King Ahaz has died, that is in a historical context, if we put this back in history. Among the descendants of that snake, or the descendants of King Ahaz, shall spring up a viper, and his offspring shall be a fiery flying serpent. Seraph me'ufev, says in Hebrew, and seraph is the same word as seraph. So a flying seraph. His offspring will be a flying seraph. And he's a messianic type of person. And that flying seraph alludes to the seraph category of the spiritual ladder in the book of Isaiah, which is the category below the Lord. It is the Lord, then the seraphim or seraphs, And then there are the sons and servants of God. Then there is Zion, Jerusalem. Then there is Jacob, Israel, and so on down to the king of Assyria. So this is an allusion to a descendant of David over several generations who attains seraph status, or ascends to the seraph category. And that will be people of the caliber of Moses and Elijah, translated beings and others like them. And those beings have special powers, as Elijah did and as Moses did. That is the power that the Lord's servant will have in the book of Isaiah, who is a messianic type and is a descendant of David. That's why it says in verse 30, The elect poor shall have posture, and the needy recline in safety. Remember the youngster who will lead them to posture? But your descendants I will kill with famine, and your survivors shall be slain. So that means that these elect poor and these needy, who will have posture and recline in safety... They will inherit the millennium, a time of peace, in a promised land. They are like sheep here, meaning the Lord's covenant people, versus these other people who will have no survivors, no descendants, meaning the wicked. In that category come the Philistines who are rejoicing over the death of one of these messianic types, the death of the sin of David. Famine is a covenant curse, and being slain is a covenant curse. So, while the one group experiences deliverance, the other experiences destruction. When? Or through whose agency? Through the agency of a seraph, or a savior figure of some kind, who is a descendant of David. This is very similar to the allegory in chapter 11, verse 1, where the shoot comes forth from the stalk of Jesse, and the branch from its wrath bears fruit. This is also an instance of what's called Zion Ideology, which appears all the way through the book of Isaiah, wherever the word Zion is mentioned. Wherever the word Zion is mentioned, you have destruction of the wicked, deliverance of the righteous, at the presence or through the agency of the Son of David, the Lord's servant. Do you have all those components here? You do. You have the mention of Zion in verse 32. You have the destruction of the wicked there, which we just read, and also in verse 31. And you have the deliverance of the righteous. The poor and the needy were identified at the beginning of verse 30. The poor and the needy have been identified before as what? The Lord's covenant people, the righteous people. And it also says the elect. Verse 31, Wail at the gates, howl in the city, utterly melt away, you Philistines. From the north shall come pillars of smoke, and no place he has designated shall evade it. So a time of howling and wailing, which is a covenant curse, a time of calamity, for the Philistines, the enemies of the Lord's people. Whether they're actual Philistines or whether it's just a symbolic category, doesn't matter. From the north come pillars of smoke. From the north always comes destruction. From the north meaning Assyria. So these Philistines are destroyed by the Assyrians. Shall come pillars of smoke. That could be what we saw earlier, mushrooming clouds of smoke. No place he has designated shall evade it, So every place that is doomed for such destruction that is on the list, so to speak, is destroyed. Verse 32, what then shall be told the envoys of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, that his long-suffering people find refuge there. The envoys of the nation are those who take news abroad, whether the nation of Israel or other nations, that at that time, when that destruction comes, is also the time... When the Lord establishes His people, Zion, how did He do that? He does it when they come out in an exodus and become one people, and they are reborn, or they are born as the people of Zion. They experience rebirth as a nation. This is Israel anciently was born at the Exodus out of Egypt and became a nation at that time. Before that, they were not. They were just some captive tribes of Israel, or Hebrews. They became a nation, and they were born as a nation and they covenanted with God in the Sinai wilderness. And so it is here. At this universal destruction by the Assyrians, these people come in an exodus and are born as a nation. people called Zion. Zion is both a people and a place. It is those of Israel who repent in the place to which they return, which is a place of safety. The Lord has founded Zion. Let his long-suffering people find refuge there. Long-suffering meaning they've gone through some trials. They've waited it out. They've exercised faith in the Lord that he would deliver them. Chapter 4 is a little background to that. Then shall they who are left in Zion and they who remain in Jerusalem be called holy, all who were inscribed to be among the living at Jerusalem. Over the whole side of Mount Zion and over its solemn assembly, the Lord will form a cloud by day and a mist glowing with fire by night. It shall be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day, a secret refuge from the downpour and from rain. There's the word refuge also. That's a word link.